You might find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you if you've got it there. I wonder what you think about when you hear the word church. There's a lot of confusion in our society as to what the word means, isn't it? Sometimes people think of sort of grand traditional buildings when you say the word church. Some people think of, of lively meetings. Some people think of silly hats uh, that you can find and uh, sort of people are looking a little bit strange with gold and white and all sorts of things. But in the Bible, the, the word has just one sense, uh, really, or it has several senses, but it's, uh, it's quite a boring word, really. It means crowd, or gathering, or assembly. The word in the New Testament literally means those who are called out, yes, but the word is used in a non-religious way. It's used of the baying crowd who are after the Apostles Paul Blood, uh, Apostle Paul's blood in the book of Acts. There you could easily translate it mob or rabble, which is more believable on some Sundays uh, than others. But why am I telling you all this? Well, here in Exodus chapter 19, we have the first ever church in the Bible, or at least the, the preparations for it here. The people of God gathered around Mount Sinai to meet with their God. After all the disruption, after all the bickering and fighting, after all the complaining that we've seen, comes church. Perhaps your weeks feel like that sometimes. Perhaps your Sunday mornings, pre-10 o'clock, feel like that sometimes. But we're going to find out, as we look at this, about the church. Not just about the Israelites, but about ourselves. Because as we've been saying all the way through this series, New Testament believers are compared repeatedly to this wilderness generation in the New Testament. So let's see what we can learn about them and about ourselves this morning. So first of all, identity. Identity. Before the law comes, before the promised land comes, before all that's to follow, God wants his people to know who they are, or more who they will be. And that they begin to gather, uh, as they begin to gather, this is the foundation that everything else builds on. Before anything else, they need to know, who am I? What is my identity? What is our identity as his people? French reformer John Calvin wrote, this is one of the two most fundamental questions that we can ask. Who am I? And the other one is, who is God? And of course those questions are intricately linked, aren't they? Who am I to God? Who are we to God? And those are the questions that God sets about answering here for his people. He wants them to know as they gather who they are. And it's God who will define them. What he says is who they are. So firstly, he tells them that they'll be his treasured possession. Have a look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. What he's saying there is everything belongs to God. All the nations belong to him. And yet Israel would be particularly his, especially his. One of my sons has a treasure box at home, and he keeps inside it the things that he treasures. Some of the things are not worth much in monetary terms, you know, shells that we collected on a beach on a holiday, or something that reminds him of different things. If you put them on eBay, you'd probably have no bids. But to him, they are precious. They are treasure. 
And he keeps them safely stowed away, stored away in his treasure box. Now all the things in his room are his, if they're not his brothers. But those things are especially his, his treasured possessions. And that is what God is saying of Israel here. They are his treasured possession, they are his. After all, verse 4, it says that he's carried them on eagles' wings. He's brought them to safety out of Egypt. But he's not just brought them out of Egypt. Have a look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's not just that he's rescued them from Egypt. Actually, they're precious to him, so he's brought them to himself. (coughs) The eagles' wings haven't just sort of rescued them like they do on the Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the end of it, where the eagles turn up and you wonder where they fit in the hole, you know, rest of the time. They could have taken them there, couldn't they? But no, they brought them to himself. And that's been the goal all along. Not just to get them out of slavery, not just to humble Pharaoh, but to bring the people to be with God. He's brought them to him. He's gathered them to himself. So as much as they've been brought to the mountain here, really what he's talking about is that they've been gathered to God. So that's the first thing, there'll be his treasured possession. There'll also be a kingdom of priests. Look at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. As a nation, they will be priests. To the earth. That is what God intends for the Israelites. Isaiah 49 shows this really well. Isaiah 49 verse 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring them back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel was to be a light to the nations. God would reveal himself to Israel, and Israel would reveal him to the world. It's a bit like we've seen with Moses. Moses would be a mediator between God and Israel, and Israel then would be mediators between uh, God and the nations. It sort of passes down. The closest we get to this in the Old Testament is under the reign of King Solomon, when kings and queens of the nations came to seek his wisdom. But throughout most of their history, they failed to live up to their identity. Instead of being a light to the nations, they let their own light be dimmed by the nations around them. So they are a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. But in all the talk of priests, let's not miss the fact that they're also called a kingdom. It would be hundreds of years before they would have an earthly king. So how can they be a kingdom? Because they already have a king, God. Indeed, some people view this whole section of Exodus that follows, that we'll look at next year, uh, as a sort of kingly treaty that a king would make with those under him. The format certainly seems to fit in the way that it's sort of set out, though the content, of course, is very different from what a king would do with his people. Much later on as well, God explains to the prophet Samuel that when they want to appoint a human king, that they're actually rejecting God as their king, because he has been the one who rules over them. He has been the one that goes before them into battle. So they are already a kingdom, because God is their king. That is what he's showing them. 
But they're also not just a kingdom, they're also a holy nation. Look again at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The word here, holy, means set apart. They'll be different from the nations, distinctive, unique. But it is more than that. When we talk about the word holy, sometimes we just make it that, but there's more to it that than that. They're set apart, but they're set apart for something. Specifically here, for God, for his use, for his purposes. And that setting apart means something about those who are set apart. Let me explain it this way. Uh, at home we have uh, plastic plates and bowls. And if you come around with little kids, that's what we get out. We get out the plastic plates uh, and bowls. They're set apart for that purpose. That's the only time we, we get them out now. But that wouldn't really carry the idea of being holy. Because actually, we've set them apart, so we don't really care about what happens to them. You can drop them on the floor, you can you know, try and smash them, but you won't be able to break them. They're set apart, but they're not holy in the way that it talks about here. Holy would be more like those plates and bowls that you only bring out for special occasions. I know we all have them, don't we? You know, you've got them sort of stashed away and you covered the nice ones. The nice ones that you treasure so much actually spend so mostly is stowed away in the cupboards, the posh stuff. This is the fact my mum has crockery that has been in the cupboard wrapped in newspaper since 1979. Okay? I cannot think of the occasion that will mean that we'll get them out. What is worth risking those plates? But there's an expectation, isn't there, with this kind of setting apart, that it's because they're precious. Because they're pure, because they're special. And really, the book of Leviticus will explain to the nation what that holiness looks like for them that makes them special. Holiness, then, does not just imply that they've been picked by God, but that there will be a moral purity to the people that was not present in the peoples around them. They were to be holy. But all that's said here is not just for the Israelites. The Apostle Peter actually picks up these very words in 1 Peter 2 and applies them to all believers. That's why we've been singing them in all the hymns. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, written to Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Do you see how he takes those words and applies them? To all believers. I'm sure as well John had these words ringing in his ears when he wrote Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. What it's saying in those verses that now we Jew and Gentile. The church are that kingdom of priests. We are now that holy nation, and we are now that treasured possession. That is our identity this morning as God's people. We are God's holy, precious priests to the world. A nation called out of darkness into his wonderful light to be a light to the world. So did you know this morning as a believer, you are a treasured possession? His special possession, especially his. Did you know that you're part of a priesthood? 
bringing the knowledge of God to the world. Did you know that you're called to be holy, as he is holy? There's a huge problem with this, isn't there? For Israel and for us. For Israel, it's there in verse 5 at the beginning. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. This is all contingent on them keeping the covenant. And their track record so far of obedience is patchy at best, as we've been seeing. And it's alright saying who they will be, but I'm sure they would look at themselves and say, well that's not who we are now. And that's what we start to see, this tension in the second point. So our second point, iniquity. Let me read to you from verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go unto the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the people, sorry, from the mountain to the people, and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. When we talk about iniquity here, it's not so much that the Israelites have done something wrong. Though we've seen them make all sorts of mistakes already, haven't we? What we see here, though, is that the Israelites are unholy by nature. God is told to, sorry, Moses is told to consecrate the people before they meet with God. The word consecrate is basically the same word that we saw in that phrase, holy nation, the holy word. Moses must do something to make them holy, to set them apart. Now it's possibly sacrifices, but we're not told. But something must be done in the preparation before they meet with God. The Israelites, for their part, will have to wash their clothes, in verse 10, and abstain from marital relations, in verse 15. Not that there's anything morally wrong with having mucky clothes, and not that there's anything morally wrong with having sex within marriage. What it begins to show us, though, is that just being a normal human being in our world is a problem when it comes to meeting with God. And being an abnormal human being, as we'll see in the law, is not much better. The problem is, you see, that we as human beings fall short. It's part of our fallen human condition. It's not that we sin and therefore are sinful, it's that we're sinful and therefore we sin. The problem here is not so much with our actions, but our actions then expose who we are. That's one of the reasons why our identity is so important. By themselves, the people here are not prepared to meet with God. They're not ready. And there is a danger to that, 
Because to be unprepared to meet God will mean certain death. It talks in the last section about the Lord breaking out against those who approach. We find out as the story progresses, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, that that means that God will consume them like fire. Because the holiness of God is like a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Those are the less popular cousins of God is love, all the God is phrases. God is a consuming fire. That should give us pause for thought, shouldn't it? Because we have the same God. Our God is a consuming fire. We have fires in our homes, don't we? Whether it be matches or cigarettes or gas holes. There's more people getting open fires now, isn't there, to try and sort of cope with all the gas prices. But it can be easy to forget how dangerous fire is until the real fire breaks out. You see those buildings, they're absolutely destroyed by fire. We can never domesticate fire. And we can also never domesticate God. Coming unprepared is coming prepared to be consumed, to be burnt up when it comes to God. Are we prepared to meet with our God? The people have three days to prepare to meet with him, and even then it's not that simple. And so our last point, proximity. Have a look at verses 17 to 25. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went down, uh, sorry, went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourselves have warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Do you see the picture here? Imagine having to prepare for three days to come to church. Okay, so you start preparing on, uh, what would that be, Thursday. Yeah, Thursday to uh, start preparing. You wash your clothes, you pray and you fast, you try and keep yourself pure. And then when you get here, the welcome team meet you at the door. And they say, we're so glad that you're here, but you can't come any further. You're not really clean enough to meet with God. You need to stand outside the building and listen from the streets. That's what you need to do. The priests, they can go into the foyer area at the back, but actually only one person is actually allowed in the church service in the hall. It'd be shocking, wouldn't it? But that was Israel's experience for most of the Old Testament. That was what it was like for them. And it starts here at the mountain. This is the pattern that is repeated throughout the, the Old Testament. 
It's repeated in Moses' tabernacle that they'll build. It's repeated in the temple that Solomon would build. The experience for most Israelites of meeting with God was basically being told that you can't. You can't meet with God. It's not for you. Even for the priests, there was a giant curtain that was put in the way in the temple. And the holies of holies was blocked off to them uh, for most of the time. Effectively, only one person is allowed in. And it's the same here, really. Moses is the only one that's allowed up the mountain. I think Aaron gets the mention because he was going to be the high priest. Drawing near to God was something only one person could do. And then only after copious amounts of sacrifices to prepare and consecrate him, to make him holy enough. And even then, the high priest would have to wear a sign on his head saying, holy to God, just to avoid any confusion. Proximity to God, closeness to God, was not the norm in the Old Testament. A distance was put between unholy you and the holy God. Do not come near was more the message that you would hear. Now keep that in mind as we read passages in the New Testament like this. Hebrews 4, uh, uh, 16. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. All this from Matthew 15. And the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Or Hebrews 10, uh, uh, 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see how that's different from what we're reading here? Sometimes we can miss the change between the Old and New Testament. We assume that the temple, or this scene here, was like church today, or church in the New Testament. You know, everybody stood around worshipping together. But it wasn't like that at all. And what we have in the New Testament is a direct contrast to that. We have something so much better than what we can see here. Because unlike the Israelites, because of Christ's sacrifice, we can draw near to God. We are not of Mount Sinai, but of Mount Zion. That is why the author of Hebrews writes to Christians, uh, this in Hebrews 12, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of those words made the hearers beg for no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the scene we've got here. Everything is trembling. The people are trembling. The mountain is trembling. What have we come to as believers? Well, Hebrews 12 follows. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What it's saying there is that this picture that we get in Exodus of being gathered to a mountain, well that's true for us too. We're gathered to a mountain, around a mountain, spiritually speaking. But it's not Mount Sinai. It's Zion, the new Jerusalem. And like the Israelites, did you notice there too, we have been brought to God. But not to tremble and fear, but to rejoice and be glad. We too have come to hear God's word, but not covering our ears in terror, but to meet our Saviour in his word. The word at Mount Sinai pushed them away, but the word at Mount Zion brings his people in. It's a drawing near of all his people around his throne, around the Lord Jesus. It is church, full and proper. And as we gather Sunday after Sunday, as we gather, we gather to meet with God. That is what we're doing. We gather around the word to hear God speak. That is why the word is so central to our meetings. We gather and gather spiritually with all the saints that have gone before us. And with the angels and with believers from across the world. And that is what church is. The whole of that. Our gatherings are a physical expression of what's going on spiritually as we gather in heavenly realms. But I don't know about you, but the question really here then is, well, how can we meet with God without being consumed? Because that was the problem back in Exodus, wasn't it? They would have loved to have gone up the mountain in one sense. Why is it that we can come in rather than having to stand on the streets? Didn't we say we needed to be prepared Well, we have been prepared. Our clothes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He now presents us to his Father, blameless and pure. Jesus' death removes our iniquity in the Father's sight. So we still come with reverence and awe, but not with trembling and terror. Not because we are intrinsically worthy, but because we have been prepared by Jesus' death on the cross. So this morning, are you prepared to meet God? Have you trusted in Jesus' death on the cross to prepare you before God, to cover you, to cleanse you, to forgive you of your iniquity? And if you have, are you drawing near to God through Christ? Are you taking the advantage of of that proximity that's eluded generations of believers in the Old Testament? Because of Jesus, we can come near to the Father. We can approach the throne of grace. But are we? Are we doing that? Are we enjoying the privileges that we have? Are we drawing near to God or are we pulling away and keeping our distance? Because of Jesus' blood, we can come near. So come near. Let's draw near. Knowing our identity that God has given us. Knowing that we are God's treasured possession. Treasures us. Knowing that we are his kingdom of priests. Knowing that we are a holy nation in his sight. And when we think about church, when we think about our own identity, 
Let's think about that. And then let's take advantage of what Christ has given us and draw near to God through him. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we freely confess that our iniquity is great. Father, we are not what we should be in ourselves. But Father, we thank you more for the Lord Jesus, for his blood that was shed to cover us, for his blood that was shed to prepare us to meet with you. And Father, thank you that because of him we can draw near. So Father, help us to do that. Father, help us to take advantage of the proximity of the closeness that you've given to us through the cross. Father, help us not to be blasé and miss out on what is there for us to take. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.